Hey everybody, this week on the Multiply Podcast, we're continuing our conversation about being a better communicator in any setting. Check it out. Hey everybody, welcome back or welcome to the Multiply Podcast. My name is Jared. My name is David. Don't do the peace signs. signs. <laughs> For those of you who are listening. This was a greater than sign. <laughs> David just gave two finger up peace sign. No. As if he was some sort of. It's greater than. Oh, is that what you're doing? I'm greater than you. Uh, I see a little mathematics. Yeah. Using, yeah. I you're so cool. <laughs> Man, we're glad you guys <laughs> are back with us. A little Korean humor. <laughs> Welcome back. So glad to uh, to be here with you guys. If yeah. you did not know, we are in a uh, our brand new studio, mm-hmm. which is cool, exciting. Yeah. If you We took out second mortgages on our homes to set this up for you. Haven't told our wives. No. Thankfully, they don't listen to the podcast. They won't know unless one of you tells them. <laughs> That's so right. don't do it, moms. That's right. But uh, yeah, we're excited to be in here and uh, be recording. And yeah. if, if you've never seen us and wonder what we look like, you can go on YouTube, find us at here the Multiply are. Podcast. Yeah. But, but typically, we're a little less warm and sweaty because this yeah. is... It's toasty in here. One thing we've miscalculated about this room... <laughs> Well, I intentionally did that to keep you on your toes. I want to yeah. be nice, nice warm weather. You know how you know? angry I get though when I'm that's when right I'm warm. I lo- yeah, it creates a little tension between us. You know, it makes a better podcast. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's good to be back. Yeah, we Winter's started uh, last week, last episode, talking about preaching. And um, yes, sorry, I, I you started to say winter's here, and then I just like well, winter's jumped, here, like, preaching. That's a perfect segue. Yeah, you're all you're all fun. I'm all business. That's it. Yeah. Well, give us a little recap for those who uh, missed, if you missed the last episode, well, if you turn it that, off right now yeah, and go back. Stop. We're going to give you five, three seconds of silence to stop. No, no, we won't do that, but just go now. Okay. So on the last episode, <laughs> so on the last episode, we started to talk about uh, the Better Talks preaching model, which is something I created a while back, six steps to putting together a sermon. And we talked about the first three steps, the takeoff, which is the introduction, the tension, which is raising the question that your message is going to answer and not assuming that the audience cares, uh, and how much actually raising the tension, we didn't say this, but if you do this right, it actually um, it actually helps you if you're not even a great communicator, right? Because mm-hmm. if people care about what you're going to say, it actually um, makes it less important about you know how good of a communicator you are, not yeah. that you should use that as an excuse to be terrible, but it actually gives you a leg up. Um, and then we talked, so we talked about the takeoff, the tension, and then we talked about the text, which is just simply the pu- the choosing of the text and the public reading of the text in whatever format that is. And so now we're moving from the text to the fourth step, which is the teaching. And the teaching is when you explain the text to the audience. It's the simplest way I can say it. Um, and the first thing I would say about the teaching or putting the teaching together is Bef- when you get your text and you're reading it, before you go look at resources, which I think you need to do, right? You don't want to do this in a vacuum or on an island. You need to listen right. to what other people have to say about it. Um, it sort of sets up bumpers on your message so that you're not like preaching heresy. But before you jump to other resources, you got to personally like wrestle with the text. And for me, yeah. I used to like pick my text or be assigned my text. And then I would immediately start reading commentaries, study Bible notes, and go listen to what some famous preacher said on the text. And then the problem is, is that very often that preacher's perspective is so um, convincing or so well done 
that I actually can't bring my own perspective. I'm not actually wrestling. You, you only see it through their lens, right? Right. You're yeah. like there. There's only there's only these three points that apply to this yeah. text. There's no other truth. Or like there's no way anybody could break that down better. So I'm just yeah. gonna try to do what he or she did. And I still do listen at times to what other people say about a text and other sermons, but I do it much later in my preparation now. After I've already wrestled with the text, yeah, that's sort good. of put together my put together the, the sort of the bones of my teaching. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. I like that. I, I also think, I, I and this this can be easily overlooked, especially when you're preaching a lot. Um, but there's something about sitting down, like you said, and saying, um, "Holy Spirit, would you speak to me? Would you re-? like?" Ultimately, He's the revealer of truth mm-hmm. to us, and re- and so I think there is. It's so important to take that time, and for me too to wrestle through what does this mean for me personally in my own life. Yeah, because if I don't have that piece, it's gonna come through when I'm trying to communicate to everybody else. Yeah, and so to get there, you have to do two very important tasks of preaching: exegesis and hermeneutics. And so just to provide some clarity and definition, in simplest terms, there's probably more complicated, thorough ways of defining these words, but exegesis essentially is studying the text to learn what it meant then and there, right? So what would have Paul's letter to the Galatians meant to the original audience? What was his intent? What was the occasion that prompted the writing? What situations was he addressing? How would they have applied that truth to their life? That's sort of exegesis, mining the truth, the original truth from the text. Right? Yeah. And then hermeneutics is what does it mean here and now? So how do we take those timeless biblical truths and principles and apply them to our lives here and now? And you have to do both of those steps, right? Right. What, 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 you know, what happens if you do one without the other? Yeah, well, uh, one without the other is a, let's say you just mine what, what was the original author saying to the original audience um, you end up with a lecture, not a sermon that impacts people's yeah. everyday it's lives. like a college class lecture, right? not something that's applicable. Which you may have a couple people in your church that, that love that. But you may love that. You may love that, yeah. yeah. No, you may love that. No, no, no. You. you. I, I, you, you. Okay. Uh, what's, so what happens when you do it the other way? Well, in the other way, if you don't do the hard work of exegesis, then you risk importing all of your current cultural biases and context into an ancient text and make it mean things that it, you know, you sort of like are pulling it, you're, you're, it's eisegesis, you're putting meaning, meaning into the text instead of drawing the meaning out. And, and yeah. really, all of this is done so that you can, in my opinion, answer two more questions. And, and anytime you put together a teaching, your teaching, I think, needs to center around these two questions. Number one, what does this text reveal to us about God? I mean, that's a great starting place. Because a lot of times yeah. preachers actually skip past that and they're like, what does this mean for us and how we should live? Yes, but first, what does it reveal about the nature of God, the character of God, the way God reveals himself to his people? Right. Then what does it require of us? Mm. So the text reveals something about the nature of God and requires something of his people and, 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 and different things of different people in a sense based on where they're at in their faith journey. Right. Yeah. Um, and so presenting the teaching also with a diverse audience in mind, um, what this teaching might mean to a first time visitor versus what it might mean to somebody who's the leader in your church. Part of your responsibility in your teaching is to be able to uh, somehow bring that together and engage both of those audiences. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's it's not an easy task, but um, but it is really, really important. One of the things that's been most helpful for me in this area is uh, John Walton, Old, Old Testament scholar, Wheaton College, says it's important to always remember the Bible was written for you, not to you. Mm. And um, and that's 
and that's helpful. That that really shapes saying what to your point earlier is we've got to figure out what the original author said to the original audience because it's not written to me. Like Paul didn't sit down and go, "Dear Jared." Right. Yeah, the prophets but, are writing to Israel or to Judah, and Paul is writing to Ephesus, and not to us, right? Right. But it's good for us. But it's uh, but it is good for us. Right. Like the the Holy Spirit also works in making it applicable to us, and I think that's part of the job of the teacher or preacher is to help communicate both those things. Because I think for most people in our church, it, they do tend to do a little more eisegesis, where they'll read a text that it is really written to Israel, and then go, oh, God is, this is really about um, my boss at my job who is not giving me the raise I want. Right. You know what I mean? And yeah. it's like, well, no, not necessarily. Yeah. I mean, even interpreting verses that are written to the nation of Israel and and sort of like just like making it the nation of America, right? Yeah. And just sort of saying like, this is true. Now, are there principles about nations that honor God and all this? There's principles, but you have to be careful about sort of the... Um, uh, taking current things and just sort of inserting it into ancient text. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things when it comes to teaching that I probably wrestle with a lot is, um, is choosing simplicity and clarity and plainness over deep insight and cleverness. Right. And so one of the things when I think of the aim of preaching, I think of we're not aiming to be clever or aiming to be clear. And there is a difference. And in the Twitter age where so many preachers sound like they're just trying to get tweeted because they've figured out these little 140 characters or 280 character sayings that like I was like, oh, snap. They just rapid yeah, fire them one right. after another. So it's like Twitter, 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 Twitter. Right. It's like, that's good. That's good. That's good. That's good. But a lot of those are just because it's clever and well packaged doesn't actually mean it's true. Or just because it's clever, well-packaged, and true doesn't mean it's understood and received, right? Yeah. And so one of the things I'm – because I like words. I'm a wordsmith. I like saying things in a, in a as clever way as possible. At times I find myself saying, David, if there's a more clear, plain way to say it, choose it. Yeah. Right? Because clarity matters more That's than good. cleverness. Yeah, I like that. Um, tell me a little bit about when you're in the teaching, what do you do to keep the audience engaged? Because sometimes, you know, this is the bulk of the message, right? Takeoff is just, you know, a few minutes. The tension's very quick. The text is just as long as it takes you to read the verse. Now you're into the teaching, which is probably at least 50% of your message, but this is also where it's easiest to lose people. Yeah, that's true. Um, a big part, and you and I have talked about, I've heard you use this language all the time, is the idea of letting people up for air. I'm mm. not sure where you originally that's, heard that. That's also, I think, Doug Fields and Duffy Robbins in their book on preaching to teenagers. Yeah, the, the idea of letting people up for air, which is... People only have so much capacity yeah. to do a deep dive into a super serious, super uh, in-depth look at something. You've got to, um, you've got to have these moments where you come up and use humor, use stories. Um, one of the things that I like to do when I'm thinking through is I say, "All right, here's." I usually start by teaching the text, and then I'll say, um, "What is a personal story where this applies?" And then, how do I how do I apply it to them? Mm -hmm. So that's the easy come up moment. And and if you work that into, so if you have three points in your sermon, every point you've got a, okay, a personal story, you know? So, yeah. um, so that's helpful. And I, I try to use humor if I can, not always, sometimes it's a serious story, but even a serious story can be an up for air sure. moment. Yeah. I think humor can be up for air illustration, metaphors, 
even application, which we're going to talk a little bit more about later, you don't have to wait to the end of your message to do application. You can bring the room up for air, up for air by simply saying, um, one of the ways this should look in our lives is, right? Yeah. And, and you're kind of like taking them a little bit out of the depth of the teaching to the application of the truth. But I think you've got to, I mean, there's no science to this, but I would say every five minutes or less, there's got to be an up for air moment. Some people will stay with you the whole time because of their spiritual maturity or their personality or whatever. Right. But if you dive into a teaching for 20 minutes and don't bring people up for air, everybody else in the room is going to drown. And it's important that we bring people along. And of course, the up for air moments aren't just for entertainment, but they're for clarity. They're to help people put truth to metaphors and to illustrations. Of course, Jesus was this masterful storyteller right. who, who just, you know, very well shows us how to do this. Paul quoted from the poets of the day, referenced the art of the day. There was a lot of that in their preaching, very considerate of what would connect and engage with the audience. And I think we have to do that during the teaching. Would you say, I feel like those moments, the up for air, and you referenced a little bit of application, which we'll get into, but those moments, I feel like, take a teaching from a... Um, a generic kind of oh that's an interesting concept to oh wow this actually applies in my life this or this actually intersects with my life yeah not just oh that's an interesting biblical story yeah absolutely i was telling a story recently i was watching a show called um catching monsters i think it's on netflix it's these fishermen that catch these massive tuna and i was talking about how they don't catch the tuna to eat them and kill them um they catch them to tag them so they can study them and so that they can actually um, um, help the tuna. That's the whole plan, right? To better understand them. That so, seems a little... So that they can understand their migration patterns. And right, so we can get more tuna so that we can have more sushi. Sashimi. Mm. But the point being this, if you were at any point in that process to explain to the tuna that's fighting desperately for its life, hey, what are you fighting for? Like, just let me tag you. Like, this is for your good and it's for the good of all your tuna friends. Like, just let, let it, right. you know, they couldn't understand. And so I was tying that into the idea that like our understanding of in our ways and God's understanding in God's ways and, and we're fighting against God and, 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 and we want him to explain to us. But the gap between a human and a tuna is actually much closer than the gap between a sovereign God and a, a human, right? Yeah. And so I kind of, and afterwards, after the message, uh, somebody came up to me and she's like, I get it. I'm a tuna. Like, it's, it was so helpful for me. Yeah. I'm the tuna. And so, like, those little moments, you know, certainly can help the teaching drive home. Yeah. So, so let's go to the next step. After the teaching, we get to the thread. And the thread is where you connect the story you're teaching from or the text you're teaching from to the bigger story of Scripture, the, the meta narrative of Scripture, the story really that reveals Jesus. Mm. And I just personally believe, and I know you agree with me on this, until you get to this, you've not actually in many cases presented anything that's uniquely Christian. Yeah. Because you can use the Bible to preach lots of good advice and a lot of morals and ethics and how you should live and how you should treat others. But until you bring them to the gospel, which is where we find the uniquely Christian motivation and power and strength to live these things out, not in a way that is self-worship, but in a way that is Jesus-worshipped, you've not actually preached a Christian message yet. And I remember, you know, there's a famous quote by Charles Spurgeon who says, a sermon without Christ in it is like a, a what does he say? Hold on, I got to make sure I get this right. A sermon without Christ in it is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. And then he went on to say, if there's no Christ in your sermon, just go home and don't preach until you have something worth preaching. And obviously that's kind of strong language, but I think his mm. point is well taken. Like 
what is the point of the sermon if you don't get to the thread? And the thread being, here's how we see the bigger story of Scripture, the meta-narrative that God is rescuing humanity and renewing creation in and through the work of Jesus Christ. And um, this is such an important part of our messages. Well, and this speaks to, and we've talked about gospel-centered um, discipleship and what that looks like, but th- if, if you are a believer that humanity's problem and Christian's problem, number one, is that they don't believe in the gospel or they look to things other than Jesus, mm-hmm. and that's all their sin, all of their issues are, are rooted in that truth, then the number one thing that we need to be offering them weekly is Jesus. Yeah. We need to help point their hearts back to him because that's their biggest issue, right? So, mm-hmm. so this has to be when we're approaching the text— um, we got to be thinking about the thread. Yeah. How does this weave throughout, and how do I um, communicate this? Yeah, and I think maybe do, can we link anything in our podcast? We can uh, do like a Dropbox. Yeah, link? we could put it in, so, in YouTube. And, yeah. So we'll, in the what we'll do is we'll link you to the booklet, the Better Talks booklet, and in there I actually unpack four ways you can get to the thread, no matter where you are, especially in the Old Testament. I talk about person, pattern promise and problem. Super quick. Every person in the Old Testament, king, prophet, priest, exists to point us to the true and better king, the true and better priest, the true and better prophet. Every warrior, every deliverer points us to our need for Jesus. Right. And, and and I won't take the time to unpack that because the booklet does, but it's the difference between making the Old Testament characters the hero and reducing those stories to morality tales versus making the Old Testament hero someone who points us to our need for Jesus. So there's the person, there's the pattern. Sometimes in the Old Testament we see patterns, whether it's the sacrificial system, whether it's God delivering the Israelites from Egyptian slavery and then giving them the law. We see certain patterns uh, that, that, that reveal the gospel to our hearts. Then there's problems that we find in the Old Testament. How is God going to remain faithful and keep a covenant to a people who can't keep a covenant? And if you try to resolve that tension before you get to the cross— then you know there's nowhere to go with it other than just do better, try harder, live better. Yeah. Um, and then there's the promise. There's a lot of promises in the Old Testament. Some are very clear. Some maybe are less clear. But anything that promises God's plan to save us, rescue us, form a people, it always points us to the truth that we couldn't do this for ourselves. Look what Jesus had to come and do for us. And at the end of a message, you want your family, your church family, your people. Uh, your audience leaving thinking more about Jesus than themselves. Mm. And if you don't get to the thread, they're just going to leave with a self-determination to bear down and do better. Yeah. Or they'll leave depressed thinking, I can't do this. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And and Tim Keller and and Edmund Clowney have an online preaching course called Preaching Christ in a a Postmodern World. I think it's on iTunes University. Um, But in it, he talks about, I never forgot this, he talks about the subtext of preaching. You remember this? Mm -hmm. So there's the text, there's the context, both the context of the text and the context of your audience. But then there's a subtext, which is sort of like he's saying, it's what's beneath everything. It's the motivation of the heart of the preacher. And he says there's four subtexts that he often sees in preaching. The first one is, uh, do you notice how great uh, we are? And it's sort of this like chest thumping, us against them, the saints against the world. By subtext, you mean this is... This is the underlying message that the preacher communicates to yeah. the audience, even if they don't explicitly even if they say, don't say it. it. Yes. Okay. Even though they don't say it, this is sort of the sense of the message. Right. This is sort of uh, maybe the vibe, the tone, the feel, the subtext of aren't we great and all those sinners out there, or maybe it's even just isn't our denomination great and all mm. those other people who only have some of the truth. So right. he said that's one subtext. Another text is aren't I great? 
which is the preacher up there just trying to get the approval from the room. Don't you think I'm interesting? Don't you think I'm funny? Don't you think I'm insightful? Yeah, or which, you're all sinful. I'm not. Yeah, that, yeah that too. And, and with that one in particular, he said he doesn't know how to get through that quickly. It just takes time of you just kind of um, being humbled by the process of preaching and growing in spiritual maturity. Then the third one is getting a little closer to what he would say is the target, which is, isn't this teaching great? But even that is different than the fourth subtext, which is, isn't Jesus great? Mm. And so how do we move from saying, aren't, aren't we great, our church, our tribe? Aren't I great, your pastor? Isn't this teaching great? Isn't it so interesting? Aren't, isn't it amazing what I'm saying to you? Versus, isn't Jesus beautiful? Isn't yeah. he amazing? Isn't he wonderful? And it's the thread that helps us get there. Um, now, one mistake people make about the thread before we get to the last, the last step of the model is this. They actually leave the text too soon to get to the thread. Right? Have you seen that? Yeah. Yeah, they don't spend any time in the teaching part of it. Yeah. So there's some there's some teaching elements of of the text as to what is uh, what is this saying practically? What's happening in the story or in this narrative? Um, yeah. So we're we're so quick to to jump to Jesus that we don't spend any time in there, and I think that actually ends up shortchanging your thread. It it yeah. it actually weakens your thread because you don't have um, enough foundation of text. Mm to build on. Yeah. You know, so like, for example, if you're preaching like the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife, which has sort of become this go-to text for how you deal with temptation and lust. And, and um, on one side, if you don't get to the thread, it just becomes this like, hey, listen, when temptation comes your way, you got to run. And no matter what happens to you, it's worth it to run. Joseph did, you should. Yeah. Right. So people think, leave thinking, okay, I should, I should, I should, as opposed to what Jesus did. On the other hand, if you just say, hey, you know, Joseph struggled with this, but what you really need to know is that Jesus is the true and better Joseph who also was sold off by those who were close to him and also, yeah. you know, but gave, you know, was also, but gave up his, his opportunity to exact revenge, to, to, to extend forgiveness and used his newfound right. power to, to, to restore the very people who hurt him, right? Which is all true. But you're also then missing the opportunity to go, no, there is actually a, a moral ethical principle here about some good advice on how we should respond to temptation. So, do you think you short you you really end up shortchanging your application too when you don't spend enough time in the text? I think you I think you do because the text is where you're always getting application from. Yeah. The thread is where you're getting the motivation from. Right. Maybe that's the clearest way to say it. Right. Yeah. So the text is where you pull the application. The thread is where you provide the motivation. So it's yes, run from temptation. But by the way, you, you're not going to run from temptation unless you see the true and better Joseph. And Jesus, the beauty of what he's done, and as Thomas Chalmers says, you experience the expulsive power of a new, greater affection. And now Jesus becomes more beautiful to your heart than Potiphar's wife. Right. Until then, you'll never consistently run away, or you'll run from her to someone else, right? Yeah. And so, or you'll run from um, uh, being someone who finds their identity in promiscuity to somebody who finds their identity in chastity, but equally is not finding their identity in Christ, right? Yeah. Different behavior, same motivation. So that's why the thread matters so they much. They go hand in hand. Yeah. All right. So the, the sixth and final step, and again, we kind of already said, you don't have to wait. In fact, I don't think you should wait to the very end to do this, but we call this the takeaway. And this is the conclusion to your talk where you're providing some concrete next steps about how people should respond to the truth of the gospel as it affects their hearts and their lives. What are some things that you've learned about providing application, which is really what we're talking about? Well, first of all, I'll say I think this is can be one of the hardest parts of a sermon, especially when you're trying to preach really Jesus-centered sermons, mm-hmm. because um, it's you can get to the end and you're like, 
think about the cross, think about what Jesus did, and that's all amazing, that's beautiful, but we forget to give any sort of um, real application to people's lives, like like what's a what's something they can go home with and try to change, or what's a what's a takeaway now motivated by the beauty yeah. of Jesus? What's something they can begin to implement in their life? And I think um, I think we it, it can become difficult. And so for me, I, I try to say, what's the text saying? Yeah. What's the natural application that would actually and and then culturally in the context that I'm in, how does that application flesh out? And and I think simpler is better. It's not always one thing, mm-hmm. but man, you do too many and no one will remember any of them. The only thing that I would say about doing multiple application is just maybe considering multiple audiences. Not a ton of them. Yeah, that's true. But for so so for so if you're here tonight and this is all new to you, like y- your next step might be just considering more of the possibility that this is true and what it might mean for your life. But if you're here tonight and you've heard this a lot, but it's, you know, there's something about it that you feel like God's doing in your heart. Here's what your next step might look like. So you can't do yeah. that like for eight different types of audience, but you could do it for two or three. Right. Because then people are like, wait, what, which category yeah. do I fit if in? You're, and, you're, and you're 34 years old and you're a Patriots fan. What it means for you is you've got to repent <laughs> that's of, me, that's me. of being a Patriots fan. Oh, yeah. no. So um, one of the things I like to say about the takeaway is make sure that you, um, any, any behavioral change that you're suggesting connected to heart change, right? So not just here's how you should live differently, but but as the gospel changes your heart in this way, here's some of the evidence. This is what it might look like in your life. And I like that language because I like to suggest for people what it might look like. Or yeah. if, if this truth is not at work in your heart and you're not believing this and you're not letting this gospel truth work its way through your heart, here's some of the things you might expect to see. And then list some negative applications, some sort of negative behavior applications. And what you're allowing them to do is they won't put their guard up to say, he can't tell me how I should live. Instead, you're inviting them to take by the Spirit to kind of consider their own life and ask themselves, that does kind of sound like me. I wonder if I do have a gospel unbelief issue. Yeah. I think the only other thing I would say to this is it's got to be doable and practical. So suggesting a, a takeaway that is, all right, so from here on out, go home, and you're going to spend an hour in the Scriptures every yeah. day. Here's for the rest of the year, every day. Like, that may be an honorable goal, mm-hmm. but is it? does someone walk away going, I can do that? Like, that's... So I think whatever you do, you want um, you want that person to walk away going, now motivated by my love for Jesus, here's something I can try. You know, so it may just be as simple as, you know what, on your ride home today, have a conversation with your spouse about this. Yeah. Or when you go home today, make a list of five things in your life that are time wasters and don't honor Jesus. You know, it's just something simple that someone could do that afternoon. Or if possible, give them time to do it right there before they even leave. You know, take that opportunity. Two final thoughts on takeaway. Number one, um, when you have the right opportunity, don't always do just individual application, but try to do community-wide application, which Andy Stanley would kind of say is vision casting for what would it look like if we as a church or youth ministry all embodied this gospel truth? What kind of impact would we make? And then also, and this needs to be said, is in application, in all of preaching, depend on the Holy Spirit. Don't try to be the Holy Spirit. Don't try to manipulate people's emotions, manufacture a response. Be faithful to the text, preach, love people, serve people, find your voice, stay humble, and then trust the Holy Spirit's work. Um, And we've spent a lot of time in these two episodes talking about the skill of preaching, 
but there's also the heart and the spirituality of preaching and the the John 15 principle of abiding in Christ and mm. apart from him we can do nothing so I just felt like at the end I wanted to say that like you could be the greatest skilled communicator right. which in the is world, probably the most important piece but if you don't if you're not prayerful about your preparation if you're not humble and submitted to the spirit um, if it's more about you than it is about Jesus, if it's more about you, th- if you love your teaching more than you love the people you're teaching, yeah, then there's a real limit to what God will do, I believe, with that sort of ministry because you're apart from him. And he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. I can't help but feel like you are targeting that right directly to me. That's a rhema word for you. Okay. Fresh, I, I sense Fresh it. from the ovens of heaven. Thank you. Thank you. That's a beautiful manna I will consume. Um, speaking of manna to mm. be consumed, so... We love to do a little portions, uh, a portion on this uh, podcast called David's Eats, yep. where we like to hear about some of the best stuff you've eaten. Yeah, and uh, you know this podcast is going to come out around Thanksgiving time, maybe oh a little after. But oh um, my favorite uh, holiday. Yeah, your favorite holiday, the holiday of sweatpants. Mm-hmm. I think if you're smart, don't be dressing up fancy on Thanksgiving. No. What's wrong with you? No. Sweatpants. What is your favorite? food dish and i'm actually going to expand this because it's thanksgiving i'll let you do two you get to choose two okay all right two favorite thanksgiving dishes okay so i'm i'm a stuffing guy like yeah baby i love stuffing and it's got to be a little bit moist like i don't like it like crumbly and falling apart okay i like it kind of like like sticking together yeah uh and and i and i don't get this so much in my house because most of my family likes traditional stuffing but i will take like interesting things in there you know um like um don't even say you want to put nuts in there like fruit oh, uh, oh i know terrible. there's an and i've had a stuffing that had either clams or oyster in it with bacon and yeah and stuff like that so i don't mind that i like a little texture how about a sausage um, cornbread uh sausage cornbread in my stuffing sausage oh, cornbread stuffing. stuffing yeah yeah i could be down with that oh you better my, be my down only, with it only my only thing that i realized over the years with thanksgiving meals my only thing, because I'm a texture guy, is there's not a ton of texture that's true. at the Thanksgiving. So I don't mind a little nut somewhere or something that's going to give a little texture. So that's my favorite. And then, should I go sweets? I'm not really a sweet guy. Um, this is your list, man. All right. Well, I, I, I'm a, I'll just say that when it comes to turkey, I'm dark meat. Like, I'm always dark meat. Do you now. go leg? Uh, I'll, I'll Anything dark. So, okay. yeah, leg for sure. See, I, I go right for that leg, man. I want, yeah. and, and thankfully, I don't know why this is the case, but it's always like yeah. only one other person wants the leg. I'm like. Yeah. Oh, bro. And and when you first cook that turkey, don't sleep on the neck and the giblets, that sort of stuff. You ever it's fried in, them up a, after the fact? No, I, I should try. I just, bo- should. I just boil them. Boil them? Yeah, I just boil them, and then I salt them and pepper no, them. you need olive oil, salt, and pepper. Yeah. Fry those things up. Never eat, a, never eat a turkey neck in public. <laughs> you can't win. If you want your wife to give you a little kiss later, do not eat a turkey <laughs> neck in front of her. you want another human being to look you in the eye, <laughs> don't eat a turkey neck in public. It's a mess. Uh, whew, it's a lose-lose, except for you who are eating it, and then it's mm, a win. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Boom, happy Thanksgiving. Thankful for you guys. Hopefully, uh, hopefully you enjoyed this podcast. You have a great Great Thanksgiving. Um, if you're uh, if you're listening, thank you so much. Feel free to give us a five star rating on iTunes. If you're watching on YouTube, please like, subscribe, share us. We appreciate you guys, and we'll see you next time. This is the Multiply Podcast.